This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. And welcome to a discussion this week about police abolition. For many people, the idea that we'd all be better off and safer without police, and without prisons for that matter, is counterintuitive. It goes against common sense. But for communities that are heavily policed and subject to high levels of incarceration, abolition is often seen as something of a survival necessity. What we're going to be hearing today is not some sort of barn-burning anarchist call for cops to be run out of town, or worse, but an exploration of community alternatives to an institution that, in the eyes of many people, does more harm than good. Two of those many people are Adam Elliott Cooper, who's lecturer in public and social policy at the University of London, and Gio Ma, who's a writer and activist living in Philadelphia. And we begin with a little history. Obviously, policing develops in uneven ways across different parts of Europe, particularly across the imperial nations of Europe and then across imperial Europe's various colonies. But I think it's worth noting a few things. First, in the British context, certainly, that what we might call proto-policing or police forces which weren't called the police, they might be called the yeomanry or simply the army, um, have been around for a very long time. And their purpose was generally to protect property, you know, the property of aristocrats and other landlords and, and parts sections of the, the ruling class, but also, of course, connected to that to quell or repress peasants' rebellions um, when people demanded uh, better working conditions or lower taxes or, or other kinds of rights and freedoms and liberties. And we really begin to see this, these set of institutions becoming more formalized with the emergence of wage labor, right? So people earning money for a living uh, rather than being paid through the agricultural products that they are able to yield through their agricultural work, right? And this, I think, is connected to property, but also imperialism and therefore race in a number of ways. The first, of course, is that if people are being paid a wage, then on the places like the docks of London or Liverpool or Bristol in, in the United Kingdom, property owners um, and merchants and other sections of the ruling class wanted to prevent their workers from uh, taking any of the uh, products that they were helping to move from one place to another. Right? So this is where we begin to see a police force emerging in places like London. But similarly, of course, on the other side of the Atlantic, we also see Britain's police forces um, or proto-police forces being more formalised in order to control Britain's colonised and particularly its enslaved populations. And this became particularly important for Britain following a number of slave rebellions that took place across the British Caribbean following the Haitian Revolution at the uh, end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. And so on both sides of the Atlantic, we see empire, as well as the emergence of capitalism, play a crucial role in policing oppressed people, whether they be the working classes of Europe, but also the colonised and enslaved subjects um, in places across the Americas. Yeah, I agree in, in, you know, 100% with the way that Adam has described that history. And, and just to maybe add a little bit of the US dimension, um, it, it's important to, to always insist that this long history is a history, as, as Adam's described it, of property and imperial colonialism. Um, and that this is really the, the long prehistory of the police. And I say it in particular because there's this, in the US, there's this sort of a habit of describing the police as, on the one hand, 
anchored in slavery, but also anchored in the so-called London model of this sort of professionalized police, which is kind of magically stripped of all of its colonial elements, right? It seems just sort of, uh, you know, abstract model for modern policing. And, and of course, that was not the case, right? So, so we've got, you know, this story that uh, police in the northern part of the United States emerged out of this sort of appropriation of a sort of professional model. And it was more in the South that the police emerged, you know, as many you know, of the listeners will know, from slave catchers, you know, from those forces that were explicitly designed to control uh, enslaved African people in the southern part of the United States. Um, you know, of course, that's a sort of uh, reproduction of an American Black legend in which the U.S., uh, the, the North is sort of free of all sin and the South is the sort of home of the repressive, racist, um, you know, uh, prehistory of the police. Uh, of course, it, it's just simply not true, right? The, the London model, of course, was derived through colonial and, and imperial uh, intervention. It acquired its sort of militarized characteristics, um, you know, in the U.S., in places like Haiti, Nicaragua, and in the Philippines, um, in imperial occupation forces. And those sort of military occupiers then came back and designed the so-called professionalized police across the United States, doing so on military lines, right? Um, and this is no accident, right? Because you've got this long pattern which persists today in which, you know, certain populations are coded as insurgent military foes, right? Colonized populations, whether internally or externally, um, Black Americans, Brown Americans, and others um, are always seen as subject to and of deserving military force. And so this sort of like intersection with the military in this global peace of contemporary policing even um, is no accident either. But the two parameters crucial to bear in mind are white supremacy and property. You know, white supremacy itself uh, being a form uh, you know, of property. Um, and I think when we're talking about contemporary policing, it's crucial to maintain a sort of balance between the two, um, because you can't explain in the U.S. context, you know, everything that contemporary police do or the way that they operate or their overarching, um, you know, function through either of those parameters, right? Um, you've got ways that police operate that, that they would not if they were simply servants of capital, um, because they also respond so often to white fear, white anxiety, a fear expressed specifically around black mobility, right? You know, when slaves are ostensibly freed, all of a sudden the police become incredibly important to, to control the movement of these ostensibly free people through process of criminalization and ultimately convict leasing and mass incarceration. Um, but, it, you know, uh, I think when we look globally, um, I think almost sort of uniformly you see police in every corner of the earth upholding property and whiteness on some level, even in places where this seem, may seem incredibly counterintuitive in Africa and Asia, um, you see whiteness anchoring a lot of what's happening. Of course, the protection of property being the everyday sort of, uh, you know, uh, function. So that's some of the history of the modern police force and with its roots in colonialism in the UK and slavery in the USA. It's not surprising that the racialized aspects of policing have always been a flashpoint. We don't have to look any further back than the Black Lives Matter protests that swept America following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis in May 2020. Those protests were accompanied with calls to defund or abolish the police altogether, a radical call that many observers sympathetic to Black Lives Matter felt was a step too far. But the idea that we should abolish police and prisons has some serious intellectual weight behind it. It's something that the American philosopher and political activist Angela Davis, for example, has been writing about for years. I think that 
when Angela Davis wrote her very influential book, right, about prisons being obsolete, she didn't, I don't think, mean that we can close every prison tomorrow and sack every cop today and everything will immediately get a lot better. What she was actually saying is, look, we don't need police in prisons in order to be safe. What we really need if we want to create a safe and healthy society are to get rid of and replace the structures of power and inequality and oppression, which lead to people harming others, right? So when Andrew Davis says, look, prisons are obsolete, what she means is that, look, if we can create a society which is based on care rather than competition, uh, which is based on mutual aid and solidarity rather than growth and extraction and the profit motive, if we can begin to unlearn forms of patriarchy um, and racial hierarchy, um, which make these forms of uh, profit and exploitation possible, then we can create a world in which prisons are obsolete. But unfortunately, it takes a very long time and a lot of work and a huge amount of organisation in order for us to be able to create a world in which prisons are obsolete. And therefore, what her and other uh, pioneers of abolitionist thinking propose is that we instead start to build the kinds of alternatives to police and prisons that, that we can rely on today that can erode society's reliance on the police and prison system. Yeah, no, I think the idea of obsolescence, right, it operates as a kind of guide to action, right, for someone like Angela Davis, right? How is it that we make um, police and prisons uh, obsolete? And, and this in and of itself is a reframing, right? It's a reframing away from the simple tearing down to the question of the building up, right? And this is something that is a global question, uh, of course, but but acquires a kind of certain salience in, in U.S. history from which for better or for worse, a lot of the abolitionist movement gets its sort of uh, frames of reference. Um, and, and to give just a sort of the briefest of overviews, um, in the in the course of the Civil War, um, and here for those, uh, I mean, f for ev everyone, you know, in the U.S. Um, and abroad, but particularly for those that don't know the the broad parameters of U.S. history, W. B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction is really this essential text that tells the story of the Civil War as a story of Black revolt against. Uh, enslavement of, of the ways in which um, enslaved Africans took history into their own hands and made that history and transformed it, um, changing the outcome and the meaning of the U.S. Civil War, right? It was not Abraham Lincoln who decided to free American slaves. It was slaves who freed themselves through their struggle. However, um, this ultimate abolition, which was an, it's, it's a near abolition of slavery um, in the letter of the law. And I say near abolition because it's got a massive loophole for those who have been convicted of, of crimes. Um, this near abolition was not matched by a process of social reconstruction. In fact, we refer to the period after the Civil War as reconstruction, but it was a period of intense struggle, massive opportunity, really the closest the United States has ever been to multiracial democracy. Um, and yet it was destroyed by white terrorism by the mid to late 1870s. It was rolled back. And so ultimately what the United States gets is a, is a sort of abolition without reconstruction, right? The elimination of one institution, um, for the most part, namely slavery, um, without rebuilding society in a way that would make that institution obsolete. In other words, the way the social structure, you know, shook out, called new forms of slavery into being, right? Whether it's sharecropping or um, the, again, the criminalization of, of, of Blackness through uh, Black codes leading then to uh, convict leasing in which many people who had been formerly freed 
were arrested, convicted, and leased out as quasi-slaves to their previous um, you know, plantation owners and slave masters. In other words, if you don't rebuild society on different foundations, the same old institutions will continue to develop. Um, and you could look at this very concretely today by saying if we could sort of, with the, the snap of a finger, the stroke of a pen, eliminate police tomorrow, there would be new kinds of police on the next day. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. And this week we're hearing from Adam Elliott Cooper from the University of London and Gio Ma, who's a writer and former professor of politics and global studies at Drexel University in Philadelphia. They're talking about how society might function in the absence of police. And that's a difficult question to answer, especially since, as we've heard, the police force in countries like the UK and the USA and Australia grew out of the same soil as capitalism. So how can we seriously entertain the idea of police abolition in a neoliberal society? More coming up. I think that although obviously I can't speak for the uh, Australian context, Britain is also a fairly neoliberal place. It's certainly by many accounts the most neoliberal place in Europe or Western Europe. But I think there are still pockets in some ways and in many ways kind of dominant ideas relating to mutual aid and beneficial kinds of supports for each other. I think if we think about something as basic as a national health service, right, the idea that healthcare should be free at the point of access, and that's when we go to work, we should be taxed, and that tax should be redistributed um, for things like healthcare, I think is a basic principle that we should care for each other within our society. And even though we might not need it today, we want to make that kind of social investment and we all live in a better society when there are things like free healthcare and free secondary education and you know subsidised transports and things like that. So I think we can think about potentially the welfare state as being one example of this. But crucially as well, I think we can also consider wider forms of care existing within many communities across places like Britain and Europe, and I'm sure even somewhere like Australia, where people engage in forms of mutual aid, where they support each other when um, there are people who might have uh, forms of disability or mental health problems in their local area, who might not be part of their family necessarily, but provide them with certain kinds of support. There are youth clubs all over cities like London and Birmingham and Manchester in the United Kingdom, where people work for very low wages um, to support young people in their local area, um, to try to uh, help them in relation to issues that might be linked to harm or violence or other things which the police would otherwise uh, be involved in. And we can see the fact that lots of people who probably go to pretty good universities and get good degrees and could become management consultants and earn lots of money, instead decide to go and work for a local community organisation that might be a domestic violence uh, shelter, or it might be support for people who are unhoused, or it might be supporting people who have um, problems with their mental health. I think this shows that actually a lot of people would much rather do a work, a job which doesn't involve them maximising their income, but involves instead helping other people, not simply because they might have solidarity with them, but there might actually be something which gives people intrins- an intrinsic sense of hope about the world when they wake up in the morning, which they probably wouldn't get if they ended up working for McKinsey or an investment bank or a hedge fund or whatever it is that their degree might help them do. I make a a, particular effort to insist that we're not abolishing the police to replace them with nothing, right? 
And I don't think anyone really believes that, although it, it, it's a sort of rhetorical tendency within certain sort of anarchist segments of the abolitionist community that's built on an, an understanding that if we simply withdraw the police as a repressive force, the community is sort of ready and prepared to sort of govern itself in a non-coercive way. I think that's a sort of conceptual philosophical misunderstanding. I think it's a practical misunderstanding. Also, I think it's a political non-starter, right? I live in West Philadelphia. People speak to your neighbors about whether or not what would happen when the police were, if the police were immediately withdrawn, that'd be, uh, you know, they would laugh you out of the room. Um, and, and the, but the point is not to say, but at the same time, I'm for the immediate withdrawal of the police, um, but in a context in which we're constructing actively, uh, different alternatives for self-defense for community protection that raises an incredible uh you know, incredibly complex difficulty which is how does that new structure differ from the police on the one hand but also how does it differ from sort of parapolice the history of parapolice structures like neighborhood watch or community watch programs in the u.s which um, have always <laughs> essentially been on the one hand, parapolice being that they work directly with the police and in conjunction with the police. But the reason that they do so is because they also uphold whiteness and class privilege to the same degree, right? Neighborhood Watch has almost always been a sort of middle-class policing of the community um, to keep an eye out for kind of undesirables that need to be then excluded, right? There are very few exceptions um and there's always and this i understand is kind of a permanent threat to community self-protection which is how do you prevent your community patrols or whatever you've got you know in the absence of police from reproducing this tendency and in some ways you know that there are good examples of inclusive patrols or patrols that are sort of these multi-racial multi-class you know uh you know, self-defense uh, community patrols. This was happening during Minneapolis when the police actively withdraw, withdrew from the city of, uh, of, of Minneapolis. Um, and, and these kind of multiracial patrols were going around and they were doing things like preventing certain kinds of harm from being perpetrated um, by young people, but not handing those people over to the cops, right? Encouraging them not to burn community centers and community spaces and encouraging them to go home and bringing them to their parents instead of bringing them to the police. And, and these are kind of just very, very small examples of of a complete opposition between a community watch logic and a real community self-defense logic. And again, like there's this sort of seemingly blurry space between the two, um, but it's important to understand the very sharp differences that this blurriness reflects, right? You can say the same thing about so-called community policing, right? Because um, it's a tempting argument to say we want the police to be as integrated into communities as possible, we want them to be um, very much part of the communities, but what community policing has always meant is fragmenting the power of the community, sapping that power, attempting to infiltrate it, break it up, turn people against each other, create snitches. Um, and ultimately, if you, you know, in theory, if you push that far enough, what happens is the police cease to be police entirely, right? They just become community members. But here's the difference. The definition for me, the defining feature of the police is that this is a professional force from outside the community that stands above the community and against it, right? Um, insofar as we as community are getting together, making decisions more or less democratic, ideally more democratic about how to take care of one another. The question is not a formal question. Are we wearing uniforms? Do we call ourselves police? Do we use the means of violence or practices that might be understood as coercive or violent? The question is who is doing it and how, right? Um, and you know, that's the kind of self-defense that we need to start thinking about. And it's, again, it stands directly opposed to these community watches, which are effectively police by another name.
there's a group of organizers in, in the US who often get people to do a, a kind of mind exercise where they ask them to close their eyes and think about the most secure and safe place that they've ever been to for them. You know, where do they feel safe? Where do they feel relaxed? Right. Um, and they ask everyone to close their eyes and have a think where they feel safe, relaxed, comfortable, at ease. And they ask everyone to open their eyes and they ask them, okay, so um, what did you guys have? And people say, oh, you know, I was at my grandparents' house or I was in my local church or I was, you know, with my friends at the beach or something like that. And they say, okay, so um, who had cops and prisons in their, um, their place, right? And generally, no one basically says yes, right? And then we go from there by saying, okay, so when we think about the places uh, maybe in the city or the area we live in, that are the safest. Are they the, the communities that have cops in every corner? Or are they the communities where most people have a relatively decent paying job, uh, where they have access to education if they want it, and where they have access to healthcare, including mental health support, where they have secure housing? And the answer is generally yes, right? They'll probably be the wealthier suburbs uh, where people have access to all of those kinds of things, right? So we can see already that actually the things that we need to live safely aren't cops on every corner and living under the constant threat of imprisonment, right? They are the fundamental things that we need to live a dignified existence. And then we can go from there by saying, okay, so practically, how can we build those things around us? Well, we can think, okay, so how do we get um, build more secure jobs? Or maybe we can join our union um, and help secure people's jobs and improve their pain conditions. Oh, right. What about mental health? Well, okay. Are there community mental health institutions and how can we support them? And if there aren't, how can we build them and, and make them robust? And if they're not formally mental health institutions, what other things help with our mental health? Green space, youth clubs, music, arts and culture, supporting people who need childcare support or support of other kinds of caring responsibilities. All of these things can improve our mental health. As so we can think about other ways in which we can do that, right? And so there are lots of ways in which already people are doing work which erodes society's reliance on the police and prison system because they are helping people already to improve their mental and emotional well-being, improve their likelihood of having a secure and stable and meaningful um, set of employment conditions. People are already doing that kind of work. So for us, for me, really, it's about seeing what kind of work is already out there, which makes people's lives more secure and more safe and erodes society's reliance on police and prisons. And think about that work as being having more potential than maybe we've already understood it as having. And think about it as being connected to a, a wider project, which provides community-led forms of safety and care, but also a wider vision, which can work towards making police and prisons, as we said at the top of this conversation, obsolete. And again, you've got to say the two pieces, right? The abolition and the tearing down and the reconstruction, the building up. And in some ways, the reconstruction is, is always happening, right? Where, you know, and this is one thing I think that, you know, Adam pointed to that I think needs to be emphasized, which is that abolition is already there. I mean, and in the form of this sort of like these alternatives in the form of community organizations and, and all of the services and, and outlets and spaces and community spaces and, you know, activities for youth and all these things that need to exist, right? Um, we even have many in the U.S. Uh, examples of community organizations that are directly intervening to prevent violence, to, to you know, to mediate conflicts. And these are the kind of things that need to be you know, sort of dramatically, um, you know, ramped up. At the same time, you've got this question of, uh, you know, simultaneously um, working to tear down uh, repressive and carceral institutions, which is something that's more sort of periodic, right? You have waves of rebellion and resistance that give up 
us opportunities, I think, to um, to strike blows against these institutions, right? Just a couple of years ago, particularly in these sort of mass rebellions in 2020, we had a sort of golden opportunity to to, to make some headway. Um, and the question is, how do you do both of these things at once? And how do you, you know, contribute to both of these tasks, even though, of course, everyone's going to be working in a different kind of capacity? Um, I think it's important to emphasize, uh, you know, on the one hand, the uh, the distinction that many mark, I think, quite rightly, between reformist reforms and sort of potentially abolitionist reforms, right? Because we, we're not in a you know position where we can wait for the total and sudden abolition of these institutions. We need to talk about how to weaken them, right? Um, but we need to be very careful because many uh, reforms that are offered, and almost all of the reforms that are offered um, by the system, are reforms that up uphold and even strengthen policing, right? Whether it's new technological questions, body cameras, whether it's training, which you know infuses huge amounts of money into police, whether it's more police, whether it's community policing, all these things, these are all strengthening the police, right? Giving them more resources, giving them more legitimacy. Um, however, there are those sort of, uh, you know, you know, reforms that, that can point in a different direction, reforms that, you know, withdraw police from communities that, you know, reduce their kind of funding, that curtail their powers and their impunity. And these are the kind of changes that we, I think, definitely can support. And here you've got this sort of, uh, bridge in between, which is often referred to as kind of defunding campaigns. Um, but which I think for me is, is incredibly important because, um, it allows for a way to mobilize around the reduction of police budgets. Um, on the one hand, um, which in and of itself would be uh, beneficial, but not only for the, the concrete reduction and the reduction of con, uh, sort of contact between oppressed communities and the police, uh, but also because you can then point to um, that uh, defunding and say, listen, like your lives have not gotten worse, right? Uh, they've not gotten more dangerous as a you know, result of these millions of dollars that have been withdrawn from the police budget. Um, but the key, the real key, is that, that those resources are then reinvested into community alternatives to policing, right? Um, providing them the opportunities for people to see on a local level how their lives have actually gotten better, right? Not only safer, um, because that's also a subjective thing, um, but also more uh, community-oriented, right? Like the sense that you've got someone else to call, the sense that you've got someone in your neighborhood and a kind of cohesion, a kind of fabric of community um, that makes the police, again, obviously less present, less relevant. They don't need to be called. Um, you know, and, and to have those alternatives in place and to have them, you know, uh, gaining access to the resources that the police are currently sucking out of budgets and extracting from communities um, is is the key to the question of, of defunding. I think that we need to, to think about. So you're talking about concrete things, uh, you know, in the immediate, you know, uh, future. These are the kind of things to build up these alternatives, to increase campaigns, to demand that the resources that are being uh, again expropriated from communities collectively and handed to the police be handed back to those communities, right? To build these kinds of alternatives and do so in sort of ever more kind of democratic uh, ways. Geo Ma, he's a writer and activist living in Philadelphia, and we also heard Adam Elliott Cooper, who's lecturer in public and social policy at the University of London. And they were speaking at a recent online seminar, Police Violence and Abolition, that was hosted by roving philosopher Valery Vino. He's a very interesting figure who's been on my radar for a little while now. We'll put a link to one of Valery Vino's recent projects on the Philosopher's Zone website, where you can also stream or download this and all of our past programs. And don't forget the ABC Listen app, which is a goldmine of Radio National content. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for dropping by. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.